Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. U.S. House Republican leaders recently outlined principles they believe should be followed in any overhaul of the nation's immigration laws. This has raised hopes that immigration reform might move forward in Congress. We're going to ask you what you think on the program today. Are you in favor of a path to citizenship? How about increased border security? What's needed most? Should this issue even be a priority? Do you have a personal experience or concern regarding immigration? We'd love to get your personal experiences. And we'll be talking with members of the group Bibles, Badges, and Business for Immigration Reform. Here are the ways you can reach us. By telephone to 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can email us to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Or you can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page, where we already have a couple of comments we'll get to here uh, shortly. Uh, we uh, bring in the members of Bibles, Badges, and Business for Immigration Reform. Uh, Steve Clems is pastor of Zion Evangelical Lutheran Church in Salt Lake City. Pastor Clems, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you taking the time. Tim Wilwright joins us. He is an attorney, shareholder with Durham, Jones, and Pinniger. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom. Pleasure to be with you and Steve today. Uh, so let me uh, start with uh, with Pastor Clems, and then I'll uh, address the same question to uh, Mr. Wheelwright. Um, uh, some people believe that uh, the system is not broken, that uh, we're fine. In fact, we you know, are in favor of some increased border security that has happened, and uh, we don't need to do anything. I, I assume, since you're in the group, uh, you disagree with that. I wonder if you could articulate uh, the need for immigration reform. Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, I'm a Lutheran pastor living in the state of Utah and, uh, and find it, uh, quite a, that this is quite an amazing place to be because religion is the topic of conversation every day in one way or another. So uh, coming from a faith perspective, of course, uh, immigration reform, uh, especially comprehensive immigration reform, uh, would address a broken system that, um, well, Let's just start with families that um, the tears families apart. Uh, and just last year, over 400,000 people were removed uh, from this nation, 98,000 of whom were parents uh, with children who were United States citizens. The system's broken and it's tearing families apart. So there's a whole, whole number of ways that I could approach the issue theologically, faithfully, um, from faith perspective. But let's just start with family. Uh, which I believe is the foundational um, framework uh, of our nation, of our society, of our culture. And we'll, of course, be uh, be talking about many of these issues. Uh, Tim Wilwright, same question to you. What's on the top of your mind when you think about a need for comprehensive immigration reform? Well, Tom, you know, one thing that I've noticed, um, there's there's many things that people disagree about in this debate. Um, one of the things, though, that doesn't seem to be a source of much contention is that the the system is broken. I I think across the board, across across the political spectrum, the the ideological spectrum, uh, there's there's near agreement that uh, the, the system is broken. You know, my role as an immigration lawyer, I've been doing this for 17 years, represent primarily companies, uh, but also individuals, and in you know, a variety of settings where they're applying for immigration benefits. And, and what, we're, what I see every single day is a system that is, is badly broken. It has many Band-Aids that have been put on the system. Um, uh, we haven't thought through the system comprehensively for quite some time. And, and it's really doing a disservice, um, as Pastor Clems has said, to, our, to, to American families, but also to American businesses and to uh, uh, our economy. We, we really need to, I think we've, we've set ourselves up to have a, be at a competitive disadvantage uh, because of uh, this broken system. A little later in the program, I'm going to uh, have each of you gentlemen respond to some of the things that uh, are in this uh the statement of principles from House Republican leaders. Of course, we have a, a Senate bill that the uh, House leadership has said they're they're not going to take up, um, and uh, we have some uh, 
proposals put forward by the White House. All that was going to have to come together, and uh, I'm going to ask you uh, what uh, you think should should be the you know the top priorities here. Uh, first of all, this comment on our Facebook page from Aaron Brewer. Thank you for this, Aaron. Uh, we ask, uh, what's uh, top of your mind? What would you like to see? And she answers, path to citizenship and financial aid for college-bound children of undocumented individuals. Uh, let's begin with uh, Tim Rilwright on this one. Uh, what, what do you think of those two points? Path to citizenship, financial aid for college-bound children of undocumented I- individuals. Yeah. Well, the path to citizenship, I don't think there's any doubt, is the key sticking point right now. There's some other issues where there's some disagreement, but uh, uh, this pathway to something um, – uh, for the undocumented population that are living here now, estimates between 11 and 12 million. Um, and you've got the Senate uh, bipartisan bill that passed uh, with you know heavy bipartisan support, uh, which uh, is a pathway to citizenship. At the end of the 13-year process, uh, if someone chooses to do so, they could uh, become a U.S. citizen. And keep in mind, that's not only a long process, but that's a very arduous process that uh, requires multiple background checks and and uh, uh, fines and making sure taxes are paid and making sure that people are, uh, are you know gainfully employed. I mean, it's a very tough but yet fair uh, uh, process, the end of which could possibly be citizenship. But, of course, people are fundamentally opposed. There are some people who are fundamentally opposed to uh, what they perceive as being rewarding illegal behavior. And I, I certainly understand the argument. Um, and, but anyone that would, would label this 13-year path to, to citizenship as you know, some kind of amnesty or, or a free path uh, perhaps has not spent time really examining that, uh, what the requirements are for that. As for the... Um, the, the in-state tuition, you know, this is, uh, first of all, the number of, of individuals in our state that, would, that are impacted by this actually is, is quite small, but yet it's, it's very symbolic of the fact that, you know, if, we're, if we have this, this population of undocumented youth who were brought here by their parents or under some other circumstance that was beyond their control, and, and what I have seen with many of these that I, I interact with is that these are young men and women who have re- taken advantage of an opportunity that has been presented to them to get a good education and to, and to excel throughout elementary and junior high and high school. And then you arrive at those college age years. And there is, has been, uh, and fortunately not so in the, United, in, in the state of Utah, but in other states, and then there have been movements to try to, to, to do away with the in-state tuition um, for undocumented um, students. And this is very concerning because, look, if these individuals are here, uh, don't we want them to be in a position to be able to make a uh, to, to become educated and and be in a position to make continue making a positive and valuable contribution to to our state? Really, uh, the in-state tuition issue helps facilitate that and removes one barrier. Look, there's plenty of barriers that already exist for these young men and women. Uh, this is just one more barrier that we actually can can eliminate. And I think with the the foresight of the the state legislature, that has been the case. Uh, Pastor Clems, I wonder your feelings on on these two issues as well. Would you, if something less than path citizenship were able to be passed out of Congress, signed by the president, would would you consider that a step forward, or do you, you think this is a uh, sufficiently important that be a deal breaker? Well, great question, great point. First of all, I want to thank Aaron for raising the issue of um, pathway to citizenship. I. I often frame it as, um, as, as Tim articulated, this is an arduous process, and, and I often call it an earned pathway to citizenship. And it, it encourages all kinds of accountabilities and responsibilities, something that we would expect with um, citizens. Um, deal breaker, um, well, I certainly, I, I certainly advocate for uh, an earned pathway to citizenship. The downside being that if we were to um, uh, create some kind of legal status that creates a whole class of, if you will, second-class citizens in this nation, um, I don't think we've had anything like that since the days of the Civil War with slavery. So 
Um, it, it causes concern, but again, I, I really, um, I really want to just trust the process. Um, I, I'm encouraged by Republican principles that we're even beginning to talk about immigration and legal status again. And um, and so I'm much more concerned right now with the process, and and we'll see how the content uh, begins to to fall out. I'm um, I'm 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 a it's a it's an occupational hazard. I'm a preacher, so sorry if I get uh, preachy here, but but I'm caught up in this as our other faith leaders, I believe, because uh, this is a movement that addresses brokenness. So. We leave politicians to do the good work that they need to do, and it's often messy that I can appreciate. But um, but we'll keep on in the movement, uh, calling for for justice and well-being and welfare for all people. Thanks. I want to follow up with that. Um, you you say you you and other uh, faith leaders are involved in this because this addresses brokenness. What uh, maybe expand on that? Uh, and and have you worked with with families who have been caught up in this? Yes, I have worked with families caught up in this, um, my family included. Your family included? Yes. How so, if you'd care to share that? Well, um, well, my bride of the last 12 years uh, I entered the States without documentation and, um, and have sought to, if you will, um, uh, get in line. We've discovered there is no line <laughs> um, twice of uh, petition to have... Uh, uh, green card status because of um, by way of marriage or uh, with adjustment of status or uh, or, or claiming hardship. So, mm. uh, and and you say you you mentioned and uh, I think I've heard this as well. People try to get in line and discover there's I think you said no line or it's right. or it's a very yeah. very hard process. Yeah, I. Um, our attorney Tim could probably help out better than myself, but 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 help me out, Tim. Sometimes I hear people say, "Well, well, we need to honor the people who did this legally," you know, and sometimes referring to their own families. But but I wonder, I wonder if people who came here as recently as in the '80s, if if the same, if they could get in legally according to the system that we have now. Yeah, Mr. Wheelwright. Yeah, I've, I've been doing this for 17 years and it, it's it's astounding to me just how much the the lines the waiting lines um, uh, have have changed um, precisely you know in, in in the mid to late 90s uh, yeah there were lines but they were those were manageable lines uh, maybe a year or so um, but with with each passing year um, those lines have steadily increased, and it's a combination of there's been more people that have been interested in coming into the United States, and so there's been more beneficiaries. But more importantly, we have immigration uh, quotas, and you know everything is regulated by we, we try to regulate the number of green cards that are issued every year uh, according to family preference and according to uh, uh, employment uh, preference. Um, but we, so we have not gone back and reevaluated those numbers, though. We have this increasing demand, we have this increasing need, but we've not gone back and said, all right, does it make sense to only allow in 140,000 employment-based green cards this year? Does that make sense? And um, that's the that's the part of the discussion that we that has been missing until really last year. And, and hopefully this year, hopefully the, the discussion continues about what do we need in, in, our, in our country? What, is, what, you know, should we tie it to market forces? Uh, should we set artificial numbers? How can we make sure that we're pr- protecting uh, U.S. workers? All of those are important factors, but, but what we have right now is a system, and I'll just give you a, an example, um, rep- representing an individual who uh, works with one of the major research universities in the state of Utah, um, has a Ph.D., works in uh, 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 medical informatics, uh, very highly skilled, just happens, unfortunately for him, to be from, from India in terms of, of where he sits in the immigration system. met with him the other day. His, his uh, green card application, despite having a Ph.D., has been pending now for about five years. And 
you know, the prognostications of how much longer he will need to wait is another five years. And I told him that's probably optimistic. But let's, let's say that that's true. We are making someone who received a Ph.D. from one of our U.S. universities wait 10 years to get a green card. We've already invested in their education. We have, uh, prov- they are working in our, in this case, in our healthcare industry, but, but it's across sectors, and especially in the high-tech sector that are making, you know, very important contributions to our research and development, but yet we're telling them, look, if you're from India or from China, you just wait. Just wait. Put your life on hold. Uh, it introduces tremendous uncertainty for not only the individual, but also for their family, for their employers. This, these long waiting lines are, are really a problem. And, and, and to uh, Pastor Clem's point about there being um, no line, that is so true. There are many cases where there just simply is not a category where they can fit. And even if there is a category, Tom, often there is something that stands in their way from being able to legalize their status. Um, one of, just one example is we have a provision in the immigration laws called the unlawful presence bar. If someone lives here illegally for more than six months and then leaves the country, they cannot return for three years. If they stay here for one year illegally and they leave the country, they can't come back for 10 years. Now, there are some limited circumstances where it's possible to apply for a waiver, but there is a tremendous amount of uncertainty about whether that individual would be able to come back. And really, there's not... Uh, there, there are not many circumstances under which someone could qualify for a waiver. So we have actually have built into our immigration system right now these incentives to stay here illegally. If you present these comp- this scenario to a, a potential, if I present this to a potential client and say, well, here's the consequence of you leaving right now to try and apply for a visa, or you can stay here illegally, they're going to stay here illegally because it, it just it doesn't make any sense for them to leave and be subject to those bars. Those are the kinds of things, Tom, that we have to reevaluate. We we need to we need to look at those carefully and say, do those make sense? And is there something we could do to fix that? We are uh, talking about immigration on the program today. Uh, on the occasion, uh, this this program, as I'm sure uh, many other articles and programs uh, have been, uh, spurred by U.S. House Republican leadership issuing uh, principles they believe should be followed in any overhaul of the nation's immigration laws. Uh, This has raised hopes that perhaps uh, something uh, along the lines of immigration reform might move forward in the Congress. Um, Back and forth headlines every day, but uh, looks like if the House leadership is willing to issue some principles, maybe they'd be willing to address this issue. We're asking you what you think. Are you in favor of a path to citizenship, increased border security? What's needed most? Should this issue even be a priority? Do you have a personal experience or concern regarding immigration? And we're talking to members of the group Bibles, Badges, and Business for Immigration Reform. Steve Clems is pastor of Zion Evangelical Lutheran Church in Salt Lake City. And Tim Wheelwright is uh, a lawyer specializing in immigration, a shareholder with Durham, Jones, and Pinnegar. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, more... And uh, I'll be reading a lengthy uh, Facebook post. It's longer than we usually like, but it's very interesting. Uh, Jennifer, who posted on our Facebook page, whose views changed over time because of her personal experiences in a surprising way. Uh, So we'll address some of the issues in that Facebook post. You are welcome to join the conversation. We'd love it if you would. 1-800-826-1495 is the phone number. 1-800-826-1495. What do you think should be done with immigration? Uh, You can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page, or you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com. More following the break. 
Utah Public Radio wants you to design the next UPR mug. Draw, paint, or photograph your way to the top design as voted on by UPR listeners. What could be more cool than having your artistic creation enshrined forever on the side of a public radio mug? Simply create a design that reflects your interpretation or appreciation of UPR. The new entry deadline is Monday, February 10th. For ideas or for more information, just go to upr.org. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU Extension 4-H and Youth Programs, dedicated to ATV safety through promoting safe writing practices and environmental awareness. Information at utah4h.org. And by Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3 offering Jewish rye, polenta cheese bread, and ciabatta sandwich buns. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Immigration is our topic, uh, specifically illegal immigration, but the whole system as well. Uh, Many believe the system is broken, needs to be fixed. The last big reform was, I believe, 1986. And, in fact, one of the reasons I believe that uh, there isn't, hasn't been an agreement uh, since then of any large scale is that uh, some people uh, felt burned by the 1986 uh, uh, reforms. We'll ask our guests about that uh, as we go along. Our guests are Steve Clems, pastor of Zion Evangelical Lutheran Church in Salt Lake City, and Tim Wheelwright, who's a lawyer with uh, Durham, Jones, and Pinnegar. They're members of the group Bibles, Badges, and Business for Immigration Reform. And uh, we are responding to House Republican leadership on the national scale, recently outlining principles they believe should be followed in any overhaul of the nation's immigration laws. They say they're they're not going to take up the Senate immigration uh, bill, but this raises some hope that immigration reform might get done, perhaps this Congress. We'll have to wait and see. We're addressing this issue asking you what you think should be done, and do you have a personal experience or concern regarding immigration? Here's the way to reach us. 1-800-826-1495 is the telephone number, 1-800-826-1495. You can reach us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or you can uh, comment on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Uh, so, uh, gentlemen, uh, I want to read this uh, Facebook post. It's rather lengthy. We usually ask people to keep it uh, shorter. Um, but this is, raises some interesting points. And so I'll just read this and, uh, and then ask you to respond to some of, the, some of the points here. This is from Jennifer Hawkins on the Utah Public Radio Facebook page. She says, I lived in South Florida for 25-plus years. I learned fluent Spanish. I got engaged to a man from Cuba. I worked at a nonprofit called Latinos in Action that claims to want to help Hispanic students do better in academia. In other words, I have a lot of direct experience with various Hispanic people and communities. I can tell you that Hispanic cultures have a clicky nature. For example, nepotism is embraced. The result is Hispanic groups only caring about their small group and being unwilling to care about larger groups, say the greater American community they could belong to, as well as supporting someone popular for a position even if they aren't qualified. Further, Uh, machismo, uh, sexism basically, she says, is rampant. Part of this is likely stems from Spanish itself being a gendered language. Uh, Several studies show gendered language speakers tend to be more sexist. Uh, Of course, we'll respond to some of these points as we go along. A Hispanic majority means unqualified people in power, the needs and rights of non-Hispanic groups being ignored, a step back for women. I can't tell you how many times I've been passed over for opportunities in Miami or even here, the uh, Latinos in action, because I wasn't Cuban or because I was a woman. I used to support immigration as part of America's heritage and identity because of its economic benefits and because in some cases it's the merciful thing to do. However, I'm now 100% against immigration. I think we should take steps to deport some Hispanic immigrants that are already here in various states of legality. You want to live in this nation and enjoy its benefits. You should see yourself as a part of the greater whole and this nation. You should want your children and non-Hispanic children to succeed, etc. You should support people and policies that are best for this nation and not the one you left. And sexism has to go. Women fought hard enough to get this far, and we don't uh, still don't get paid equally for equal work. And she goes on. We'll address some of the other points later in the program. I wonder, uh, Tim Wheelwright, um, 
I could have you address uh, this notion, that the melting pot notion that she addresses here. She she thinks at least some of the people that she has encountered, and she engages in stereotyping of the entire culture, but in, in, let's just narrow that down to people she's met. Um, don't want to to join the greater society, and that's a that's an argument you hear against uh, expanding immigration. I wonder if you could exp- uh, respond to that. Yeah. Well, I think one of the the, the truly miraculous um, aspects of our history as a nation is our ability to not only welcome people from from other countries, but then to also assimilate them. Um, into a culture that trans, really transcends where they came from. Um, I don't doubt that there are pockets and, and, and personal experiences and anecdotes where people uh, may feel very much the same way that Jennifer feels. I appreciate her, her experience and her opinion. Um, I personally... Um, do not share that. That has not been my personal experience. Um, however, I do think that it's important to uh, acknowledge that there there needs to be integration. You know, it's always a little troubling to me when when I sit down with a potential client, perhaps somebody that's applying for naturalization to become a U.S. citizen, and that's something that they have to be a permanent resident usually for five years before they're eligible to do. Um, and an individual who maybe has lived here for 20 plus years and they want to speak in Spanish and they feel more comfortable speaking in Spanish and, 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 and maybe even a res- complete resistance to speaking in English. And that really surprises me. And we usually have a conversation about that because it's important to be integrating into uh, the culture, if you, uh, the predominant culture. And if you want to make a, a contribution, you want to become part of it, it's important that you, um, that you, you know, that there is this integration process. But with all due respect to, to Jennifer, I feel like that, that those are probably playing into some, some very strong stereotypes about Latino culture that I think, in my experience, are not uh, predominating um, in the United States. And, uh, you know, just one other word, and I, I'd be very interested to hear Pastor Clem's uh, perspective on this, but one other point that, that I wanted to, to mention about this, you know, we, we, we hear often about how uh, Hispanics are not integrating. Again, I think that's a broad generalization, but, but to the extent that that is true, in many ways, this de facto amnesty that we have for 11 or 12 million uh, immigrants uh, that are not here in legal status um, is really a message to them that, hey, you just stay out of sight, out of mind, don't be part of us. Just You just kind of sit over on the side. You, you come and help us when we need help. Uh, you know, pick our, pick our, uh, our fruit and our vegetables, but, you know, you just be quiet and sit over off to the side. We are, are we encouraging them to integrate into our communities? Are we trying to reach out to, to them to break down barriers so that they feel more a part of us? And conversely, we feel more a part of them. Let me read uh, just the last paragraph here before I uh, turn this over to Pastor Clems. This is, again, from uh, from Jennifer. Uh, she gives a little bit of the history. She acknowledges that uh, perhaps some of Latin Americans' issues stem from Roosevelt's uh, economic imperialism. I think talking about Teddy Roosevelt. Um, and then she says, we don't need to bring the social problems of Latin America, nepotism, machismo, etc., here to add them to all the problems we already have. Close the borders to most immigration, deport illegal immigrants as humanely as possible, streamline the remaining legal immigration process, less bees, I'm not sure what she's referring to there, and no special allowances for Cubans. Many countries have it far worse than Cuba. That's it, she says. Uh, Pastor Clems, I wonder uh, what what your response is to several of the points here that uh, Jennifer's made. Oh, my goodness. Where to begin? Um, well, my, my, my bride is from Jalisco. And uh, and it's it's often said, "Mi casa es su casa." Uh, my home is your home. And not only experiencing that with my wife um, in a different way of culture, but I've done some extended study living uh, among poor in Cuernavaca and seeing how these values, "Mi casa es su casa," this whole concept of hospitality, 
is something, quite frankly, that's that's a gift that um, that we could uh, better integrate into our lives as the predominant culture. Uh, here in these United States. So that's just a glimpse in, into saying, again, from my faith perspective, that, uh, that, that hospitality, not only from, from my faith perspective, but as I see it in almost every faith tradition, that hospitality is a core to faith. And a part of that hospitality is recognizing that in the stranger, in the newcomer, um, there's, actually, there's actually blessing that we receive. So so uh, I appreciate the tension, um, but uh, I, I would much, I'd much more lean into uh, what we can also uh, learn as well. And uh, oh my goodness, if if we say these Hispanic folk and all their good gifts, take them and get out of here. Uh, what about the pozole and the burritos and and some of the good food and the mariachi? You know, I mean, there's great gifts we already have in our country. I wonder if you'd expand on uh, or have a response to Mr. Wheelwright's point that, that uh, uh, perhaps we are acting counter to a goal that uh, that you've just articulated of, of integration, of reaching out, uh, seeking the good in the other cultures. Perhaps we aren't doing that as a society. Well, I, quite frankly, I, I think I, I sometimes like to reframe this whole debate or discussion in terms of fear or faith. If I'm living in fear, um, my world gets much smaller. I get much more defensive. I will say mine much more. Um, I will be less open to other possibilities. If I'm living in a posture of faith, then I'm, I'm living in a place of trust, and I'm more available. I'm more curious. I'm more engaging. And so, um, though this, this may not be Jennifer's case, we've... We've come a long way, it seems to me, because there used to be just such um, dehumanizing descriptions of those who are here without documents. My goodness, you know, um, I don't even feel like reciting them, you know, swarm a locust invading or, um, um, you know what I mean, just yeah. ways that people are dehumanized. And when, when we dehumanize people, then, then we're not in the place of faith where we can ask the question, so who is my neighbor, and what does it mean to be neighbor? If you just joined us, we're uh, talking about immigration on the program today. We're responding to uh, U.S. Co- uh, House leadership uh, issuing principles on immigration. This has raised hopes that perhaps something might come out of Congress on immigration. We'll have to see about that. But we're asking you uh, what your principles on immigration are. What do you think should be done? And do you have a personal experience with this? Uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495. The phone uh, number to call, 1-800-826-1495. That's toll-free anywhere you are. Uh, you can uh, reach us by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. Or if you uh, are comfortable on Facebook, you can comment on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Uh, let's uh, go to an email next. This is from J.D. Wolf. Uh, He headlines it, here's a liberal view that you wouldn't expect. Here's what he says. Where in this discussion is there any mention of the millions of American citizens who have been forced out of a job by illegals from Mexico and South America? Where is the discussion of the loss of income and the loss of living standards that U.S. citizens have fought for over the past 150 years? Immigration. Since World War I, illegal immigration has been used to fight against U.S. citizens who were and are the unionized and well-paid workers who contribute a steady stream to the American economy and its upwardly mobile middle class. We are killing the middle class, and we're doing it in a very divisive way, and this is killing the U.S. economy, a capitalist economy dependent on middle class who spend money here and not back in Mexico. So whose economy do you support, Mexico's or the U.S.? That's J.D. Wolf. I was hoping to get into some economic aspects. J.D. has taken us there. Mr. Wheelwright, I wonder if you'd uh, care to respond to this first. Well, I th- I, th- I think perhaps the best way to... to uh respond at least initially to JD's uh, comment is look who's at the table talking about uh, trying to fix this this problem one of the the organizations that really has been at the forefront of the immigration reform movement is are, are the unions organized labor is very concerned about the impact that illegal immigration is having not only on working conditions and wages but but also their members 
and and yet they are right there at the table. They are involved with with the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and many many others to try to negotiate a, a, a system that that will work. In fact, um, there have even been some criticisms of of uh, unions that some of the the immigration provisions going forward for future immigration are too restricted because, um, for example, in the construction industry, the proposal that came out of the, the Senate bill restricts uh, the number of temporary H-2B visas or visas that are available for construction workers would be limited to just 15,000 per year. That's for the entire country. And, and yet that, that industry is saying we need you know many, many more than that just to be able to, to fill our needs. So, um, and this idea of, of uh, you know, that illegal immigrants or, or immigrants in general have uh, depressed wages, have, have uh, displaced uh, U.S. workers, um, while you can find, you certainly can find economic studies that would support that proposition, um, there are, by, by, by far and away, the overwhelming majority of other economic studies that say the complete opposite. Economists almost universally um, uh, recognize that we need immigration. And, and you just look at in our own state, um, we, are, we are facing a labor sh- shortage. And you listen to people from, uh, you know, the... the, the uh, the Department of Commerce for the state of Utah, and they're just looking even at our high birth rate. We just simply do not have enough people to be able to continue to fuel the the engine of our our economic growth at the rate that it that we have enjoyed over the last few years uh, with uh, our our current labor supply. We need more labor, and to the extent we're not able to replace that with or, or fill that need with with people that are you know, born and raised and educated here, we have to look outside our borders. And and, and often that's outside the international borders. Hmm. So, um, you know, just as an example, um, if you take a a temporary worker visa uh, for someone who is employed in one of the science, technology, engineering, and mathematics fields, the the estimate is that that one of of those jobs is creating 2.6 other jobs in the economy. That multiplier is is significant. So, you know, you just look at that in particular and we can see that that you know, immigration truly is a job creator. It 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 doesn't take jobs away from from US workers. Now again, and this kind of goes back to to Jennifer and what we talked about before, there are no doubt isolated experiences where somebody feels like, you know, right or wrong, that they were dis- actually displaced by uh, an undocumented worker or, or, or even a, a documented worker, you know, some foreign worker who, who was able to obtain a, a, a temporary or permanent visa. I think that, that those are, are isolated. They don't represent the broad impact of immigration in the economy. Let's, uh, Pastor Clemens, I'll ask you to hold off on responding to uh, J.D.'s comments so we can get a call in, and I'll loop back and if you have comment on that. Uh, Bettina uh, joins us. Hi. Um, one thing that uh, is never addressed is just the human um, propensity to be nomadic. It's in our DNA, and we go where the resources are. In more ancient times, people moved without borders, without passports, because that's where the resources were. It's our nature. You know, the the ancient cultures in the winter, they'd go south, and in the summer, they'd go north. And I think the way the world's been divided up in the last, you know, 10,000 years or maybe less, um, it causes a real problem with how we move and how the net we flow with the net nature and i would like to say that most the jobs that are competing for american jobs are usually in china and india and those people aren't even immigrating here um why do people immigrate why do they creep across the border it's not the wealthy people they can get in the airplane and fly over 
the um, it's the destitute, the people that are displaced by war and petty tyrants. And um, so, I'm you know my question is you know who is really the bad guy, not the immigrants, but it's often you know the corporations, the the um, you know the military governments that are oppressing. Um, so these, when these people come in, they do so at great risk of their life, and um, so I don't think we should make them uh, bad guys. Th- th- thanks, Bettina. Appreciate that. Yeah. Okay, bye. Interesting comment. Uh, so, uh, Mr. Wheelwright, this, uh, this idea that humans have a propensity to be nomadic, uh, borders are, uh, are, are the problem. Well, I think what we're seeing, and, and more than anything, is that, the, yes, we have borders, but, but we are increasingly in a, an international or a global marketplace. Um, this globalization is, is really a major factor, and, and uh, if, if we want to be competitive as a country, you know, continue to be competitive in that and continue to be the leader in that, um, we need to, to have a sound immigration policy that, that takes into, that considers some of these these factors that uh, uh, this caller was talking about and that are, are appropriately responsive. Um, uh, we, uh, you know, I certainly don't favor open borders, and, and I don't think that there's anyone... Uh, I, very few people that I've talked to in this discussion that, that for an extended period of time that, that feel that way. But the reality is we've got to figure out how we as a country can compete at the level that we have compete, been competing or more, uh, given the realities of the world that we live in today. Um, you know, another, th- another thing that comes to mind as I was listening uh, to the comment is, you know, really the act of immigration is an entrepreneurial act. Um, if someone, now, certainly if someone is forced out of their country because they've been, you know, displaced by war or genocide or, or whatever myriad of other uh, negative factors might be happening in their country, uh, that's one thing. But, but there's also this, this human desire for something better, to, to improve their condition. And, and I've always marveled at the, the, the courage that it takes for someone to be an immigrant you know they're not content to be uh, for the status quo. They're they're pushing to to get some. They're pushing for something better in their life, something better for their family, and uh, otherwise you don't take the risks that that, that they take. Um, and and so and and we see that also in in just simply the uh, the rate of of companies that are formed in the United States by immigrants or they're the first generation of, of, of their their uh, posterity. You know, I think it's about it's a, close to 40% of the Fortune 500 companies uh, were started by immigrants, and and so we we need to embrace that entrepreneurial spirit and 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 uh, figure out a way that we can tap into that and encourage that so that it benefits our economy, so that it benefits our society, our culture. So, uh, Pastor Clem, we've had a, a couple of, we had J.D.'s uh, email and Bettina's uh, call, and I wonder if there's anything specific you want to respond to uh, in either, either of those points. Uh, I wonder specifically uh, Bettina's point about human propensity to, to move around and that... Uh, uh, and, and Mr. Wheelwright, uh, while you were gone, was saying it, he doesn't support uh, lack of borders or removing borders. But I think Bettina's point is uh, perhaps we ought to loosen up the borders a little bit and allow people to, to move around um, for economic benefit or or for whatever reason. Yes, I agree with Mr. Wheelwright. I, and it's a na- nation's sovereignty to, to attend to their borders. However... Um, let's look at what changed. And, and again, when I was in Guanavaca, the poorest Capesino knows what NAFTA is and what NAFTA did to um, the economy in Mexico. For example, uh, here in the United States, through NAFTA, subsidizing farmers who can set, 
who can send and flood um, corn uh, into Mexico uh, and thereby take out subsistence farmers, creating desperate people who need then to uh, who lose their land and end up in maquiladoras, you know, into factories. Um, I, 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 I just want to raise the point that it's not always a simple answer to a complex question, but what, what's going on with our own policies, you know, that may better create um, justice so that people wouldn't, um, we wouldn't be creating such desperate people. The other, the other point that, that I anticipate when comprehensive immigration reform takes place is that those people who are um, being, being um, paid under the table, if you will, they're not going to have to be in the shadows anymore, and they're going to be brought up to the same level, you know, competing on the same playing field or level playing field, if you will, with the, with the worker. And I just see this as a win-win in terms of um, not taking jobs away, but, but, but raising the bar altogether for labor. We just have uh, two minutes left, and I want to give each of you a, a minute to, to, to just uh, conclude. Uh, maybe your, your, the top principle that you're, you're looking for, if you could guide uh, Congress, uh, starting with uh, Mr. Wheelwright. Well, the, the top issue has to be um, what we do about the undocumented population. That has been the sticking point. That, that is why uh, the proverbial can has been kicked down the road on this issue. No one wants to make the tough decisions on that issue. Now, we need to solve that problem. That, that's something that's not going to go away. If anything, it's only going to get worse, and so we need to deal with that. But at the same time, there are a host of other issues related to our immigration policies that in many ways are being held hostage by that particular issue. So for the sake of the undocumented population, as well as all the other areas of immigration policy that need to be addressed, need to, we need to find a, a workable solution. We have to move forward with immigration reform. We cannot continue to put it, set it aside and, and leave it for another Congress to deal with. We need to deal with it right now. And, and uh, the Supreme Court, one of the things that came out of the recent decisions, this is Congress's responsibility. You cannot, it's not delegated to the states. It's, it, it has to be resolved by Congress. We need them to act. And uh, Pastor Clems, uh, to give you a minute to, to have the, the last word here. Thank you very much. And first of all, it's been such a privilege to be on with Tim and with your great um, gifts for moderating, Tom. Thank you so very much. I agree with Tim. We need to um, have a comprehensive uh, approach. Um, it was my privilege to be uh, uh, in the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings the last two days before they passed uh, Senate Bill S-44. And... Um, and, and I was never so proud to be a citizen of these United States as I saw what it meant for people to compromise, to address what needs to be addressed, which is um, not just chipping away at the inches, but um, about comprehensive uh, immigration reform. And, and that's my hope. And I, I hope the House of Representatives um, continues to go on a balanced as well as a bold um, approach in their leadership and addresses this issue. All Thank right. You very much. We're out of time. Uh, JD, um, who emailed earlier, responded back. We'll put this on our website for people to see. Uh, JD, we don't have time for to get to back to the comment. Um, and we have been talking about immigration with members of the group Bibles, Badges, and Business for Immigration Reform. Steve Clems, pastor of Zion Evangelical Lutheran Church in Salt Lake City, and Tim Wheelwright, a lawyer with Durham Jones and Pinnegar. Thank you both so much. Thank you. And thanks Thank for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Orchestra of Southern Utah, presenting Children's Jubilee, Where Dreams Are Born, allowing children of all ages to explore science, art, and music. Saturday, February 15th, concert at 2 p.m. at the Heritage Center. Information at orchestraofsouthernutah.org. Commentator Richard Ratliff. How many laws would it take to keep people from doing anything wrong? Call it morality by law. Almost everyone can understand the necessity of law for an orderly and safe society. But at the extreme, where law is viewed as the only effective remedy, there are two serious problems. The first problem is that we can't pass enough laws. 
the most important business of society becomes passing, enforcing, and arguing laws. People are ingenious at circumventing the law. What is more, when someone cries foul, we hear, I didn't do anything wrong. It isn't against the law. The logic is simple. If it, whatever it is, is not against the law, then it must be okay. My conscience is clear. Regardless of my intent or the consequences to anyone else or to society in general, as long as it isn't against the law, I can do whatever I want. This argument is dangerously wrong. The second problem with depending solely upon the law to uphold personal and social rectitude is that the idea is economically unsustainable. It adds little to the actual welfare of the economy. The intent becomes to protect, ensure, and preserve, not to prosper. What is more, the cost of establishing, enforcing, and arguing the law becomes crippling. Our courts are clogged, our prisons overflowing, our police and public safety services overburdened, and the already high cost of government is rapidly rising. I believe the answer to these problems lies in the economics of morality. Simple, universal ideals of right and wrong, and the economic consequences of those ideals. Many people will argue that morality is a slippery concept. Who knows what moral means? What may be moral in one situation may not be in another, and what may not be can be. And since it is difficult to know exactly what is moral or immoral, then anything goes, any time, any place. Propriety is outdated. No longer relevant, but we pay a heavy price economically and socially for our freedom to do what we want, when we want, where we want. Very practically, how can we know whether something we do is moral or immoral? Morality occurs in the context of relationships. When we intentionally harm or endanger someone or society, that act is immoral. When we do something to benefit someone or society, that act is moral. Sometimes there may arise moral conflict when, if we do one thing, someone benefits, but someone else suffers, or the other way around. In these cases, we usually try to maximize the benefit and minimize the harm. While circumstances and customs may differ, the same questions apply everywhere: Am I helping? Are hurting. If both, then how can I help more and hurt less? Such a simple system implies moral responsibility, but such responsibility can make us uncomfortable. It is easier to let the law take care of it, but not really because of economics. Exclusively legal-based morality is both impossible and economically unsound. It is bad for everyone. Personal morality, while difficult sometimes, is both possible and economically sound. Moral choice improves relationships. Immoral choice harms relationships, and healthy relationships are more beneficial and less costly than unhealthy relationships. Unhealthy relationships are harmful and expensive. The unhealthier they are, the more harmful and expensive they become. Consider then a society of all healthy relationships. How much law would be required to maintain that society? Consider a society of only unhealthy relationships. How much law would be required there? Finally, where would you like to live? Consider the relationships. This is Richard Ratliff. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD one eighty nine point five Logan, KUSK HD one eighty eight point five Vernal, KUSL HD one eighty nine point three Richfield, KUST HD one eighty eight point seven Moab, KCEU eighty nine point seven Price, and KUSU FM HD one ninety one point five Logan.